0: Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God Learning Cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. You can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts. Or see the show notes for details after the description. Too often our discipleship isn't fast enough to catch up with the speed of life. But this is where the right brain comes in. This is what we're talking today. I'm Jeff Holstein. And this is the Being With Podcast where we're looking at the intersection of neuroscience and faith. And it is produced by Grassroots Christianity which seeks to grow faith in everyday people. Today, we have a special guest, Michael Hendricks, who is a teacher, a trainer, an innovator, and an author. He is the director of the transformational consulting at Life Model Works. He's a former pastor of Spirit Reformation in Lafayette, Colorado, and he's served all around the world. And he has most recently written a book called The Other Half of the Church. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah. Well, I ask all the guests who come on, uh, we're going to jump into your book, The Other Half of the Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation, which I'm sure our listeners do want to overcome spiritual stagnation. But we, before we jump into that, how did you get interested in these things of neuroscience or psychology and other related faith? What's, what's just a little bit of your journey on that?
1: Well, I was... Uh... I was a pastor of spiritual formation at a big church in the area uh, in here in Colorado, which is where we're based out of. And you know my job was basically helping people grow as Christians, you know grow in the in their likeness of Jesus in their everyday life. And uh, you know read a lot of Dallas Willard and other authors that talk about this and just kind of bought into that, was really sold out. But I kept running into the question how? How do you do some of these things? And uh, and in my job, I would see that you know some of the the, the trainings and, and books and practices and things I would um, I would promote in our church and train people in. It seemed like they would work sometimes and not other times. And even in my own life, you know, I've, there were areas in my life that, that seemed to be almost stubborn. Mm. And resistant to change and the and the usual Christian prescriptions of how you how you change those things just didn't work mm-hmm. and so I was in a state of just kind of scratching my head and not knowing how to do my job if I was perfectly honest with you mm-hmm. and it was right around that time where I met Jim Wilder and uh, sat down with him and kind of just uh you know vomited my frustrations about being a discipleship pastor about where you know it works sometimes and doesn't others but for some people not for others. And then Jim just said an interesting thing that caught my attention. He says, you know, Michael, I think it might help you to know a little bit about how the brain was designed to form our character. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard anyone say anything like that before. You know, I went to seminary. I never once heard anyone say anything like that in in my whole master's degree in seminary. And so I was all ears. And so that's that's how this whole ball got rolling in my life.
0: Yeah, well, and we've had uh, Jim Wilder on the show and you know, he has recently written a book um, just about the renovation of the heart and how it fits mm-hmm. in with the spiritual disciplines and the kind of the spiritual formation movement. Uh, and that's that's been really great. But you actually co-authored this book, The Other Half of the Church, and you really do kind of um, get a little further into, well, how does this work? Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of does start off with appreciating that we have a brain, but there's kind of two parts to a brain. So can you talk a little bit that uh, our church discipleship has too often been left-brained? What, is it, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, so when I met with Jim one of the times, we got a group of people together, and, and you know, after have, the first lunch I had with him, I said, can we get together again for some more time? Because I could tell I just got just a, a shallow tasting of all that was there. So we got about 10 people and met with him a, m- a month later after I first met him and uh, and he asked me well what do you want out of this meeting and i was i want to say well what i want to understand how how the brain basically works and how this informs our discipleship as we grow you know closer to jesus and jim reached over in uh, into his bag pulled out a plastic brain detached the two ah. halves and started explaining to us how the basics of the brain works as far as how it processes our external life uh huh and so he says, that, you know, we really have two brains. They work together, but we have a left brain and right brain that do very different things. And he says, you know, all of the all the input we get from life, you know, from our eyes and our ears and our smell and taste, touch, everything. He says it ends up going into the back right of our brain and it travels from the back to the front on our right side. Mm-hmm. And it gets processed there and it crosses over, you know, behind our eyes and then goes front to front to back on the left side. And I said, "Okay, well, what's what's that mean, though? What's the difference?" And, and he said, "You know, the the right side is really our relational brain. It's the more powerful brain. It's nonverbal, and it's really focused on things like." um Who's happy to be with me? Who are my deepest attachments right now? Mm -hmm. Um, what's my emotional reaction to our, you know, is this a safe place? Is not a safe place or, and also who, you know, what do my people say about how I act in this situation? Whatever that situation may be, my brain's cycling six times a second and saying, who are we as a people and how do we act in this situation? Mm -hmm. And, um, and it, and it has a lot to do with our identity, too, is, is always being formed and processed and, and looked at in, by our right brain. Hmm. And then our left brain is really, honestly, it's kind of what we think of as the mind or the brain in popular culture. You know, it's thinking, problem-solving, you know, verbal explanations of what we see going on, telling stories about it, figuring it out, you know, all those kinds of things. You know, our conscious, a lot of our conscious thought is really left brain. And so it's it's kind of what we think as the brain, but it's really just half the brain. the the right The right brain is actually more powerful, but it's faster than most. A lot of it's faster than conscious thought. So we just know things before we even realize them or can can explain them verbally.
0: Yeah. So when people say like, oh, a picture is worth a thousand words, that's kind of the difference between the right brain and left brain is that a picture could convey those thousand words in an instant. But if you were to say all thousand of those words, the left brain speaking through the logic, the linear, the linguistic kind of apparatus, it's going to take forever to say all thousand of those words. And so that's kind of how our brains work at different speeds. And I want to get back to that speed kind of question in a second yep. but how how i have you wrote about how too often our spiritual formation in a christian life is left brain oriented like what is yep. that Could you fill that out a little bit and i'm sure a lot of us will be like oh yeah that's been my church life so, <laughs> you know, what are some of these things
1: well just thinking of my time as a pastor spiritual formation a lot of what i had people do is memorizing and uh, uh you know, scripture, um, and, and reading it over and over, uh, we would do, um, you know, some spiritual disciplines Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, a lot of teaching is emphasized and conscious willpower to try to, you know, hear good teaching and then try to do that in our life using our willpower, Mm -hmm. you know, coming up with strategies. Okay. I'm going to do this and this, Those those are very, very left-brained, um, and we're not, and we're not saying left brain is is wrong, and we're not even arguing for a right brain, you know, Christian discipleship. We're actually arguing for a full brain where those two right. work in tandem the way we believe Jesus designed our brains to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times we leave out the right brain, which is the relational and emotional health and maturity, um, att- being able to tune to other people's emotions, being slow to speak. But yeah, actually, being slow to speak is a good sign that your right brain's working well. When we're really fast to speak and really fast with an answer, a lot of times that means our right brain's not really working and our left brain's just kind of freewheeling. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Sure. So, and that kind of comes out of a certain enlightenment emphases of either knowledge being the most important thing about you or your willpower mm-hmm. being the most important thing. And those are good things. And God has made us with those things. Right. So we're not mm-hmm. saying that those are bad and that truth doesn't exist or anything like that. But there is this lack of integration. How, uh, this is kind of a violence um, <laughs> metaphor, but you know, Mike Tyson or, or George Foreman, I forget it says, everybody has a plan until they, yeah. get, until they get punched in the face. And then you just start yeah. reacting and those reactions kind of come out of a different place of your mind. Uh, And so you, you know, you could be going over to your in-laws and say, I'm going to stay calm. I'm not going to engage with politics. I'm not going to let so-and-so push my buttons. So you have a plan, you're relying on your willpower, but then you get through the door and -and so-and-so does that thing again. You get, you know, emotionally punched in the face and then all of a sudden you're freewheeling or you're just going after. So what is What's happening there? How come my discipleship, my spiritual formation, didn't rescue me from Thanksgiving dinner at my in-laws and help me become the sanctified person empowered by the Spirit? Has the Spirit left me, Michael, or is have we just left off part of the discipleship? That's, that's a, a leading great, question, I guess.
1: <laughs> that's a great question, Jeff, and that is that is key to this issue, is that um, a lot of times that's a result of some a, a hole in our training as Christians. Mm-hmm. you know one of, the, one of the right brain focused um skills we learn is how do we have how do we increase our emotional capacity so when we're you know someone tries to push our buttons we still stay ourselves our relational brain stays on and working and we're still slow to speak mm-hmm. meaning we're under control and also when when something does blindsight us and we can tell we're about to go into that state how do we recover fast enough so that we don't damage the relationship Mm-hmm. now those things interestingly are very trainable we kind of think that's just i'm innate i was born that way i just can't do that or i can do that and that's not what we see um you know my good friend chris corsi just wrote a book called the joy switch and it's talking about how you get that relational brain back on when it gets flipped off mm-hmm. i highly recommend his book too it's a good companion book to the other half of church um but these are things we train in a, in a full brain christianity as we have exercise, I'm taking some churches through it and some consulting practice now where we, I'm taking them through. How, you know, we always tell stories, okay, whose right brain went off, whose relational brain kind of went into the ditch this week? Tell us a story and let's kind of debug it together. And then those kinds of storytelling and, and going and there's a bunch of other things, raising joy and other stuff um, that, that increase our emotional resilience so we don't go into the ditch as quickly. And then we also practice when we actually do have problems and learning how to recover quickly. Those two skills are very key, and they're very much right-brain-dominant discipleship skills that we need to grow into the image of Jesus.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, we we in an earlier episode, we did have uh, Chris Kersey on uh, to talk about the joy switch. And you do talk about that a little bit in a chapter of the other half of the church. So I do want to skip over that and jump into this idea of group identity yeah. uh, and how that is kind of stored in the right brain. And that's really um, where our character comes out. And so we try to, you know, character formation, spiritual formation, you know, we want to do the right thing in the moment, but then so often we don't. Uh, so can you, how does this character question and this group identity and how does that interact with the right brain? What's, what's going on there?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, J- Jim Wilder and his wife came to our house and did a training for 15 weeks on kind of this full-brain discipleship stuff, and even focused on kind of loving our enemies, which mm-hmm. that, that's uh, that's something Jesus commands, but mo- most of us don't know how to do it, and mm-hmm. and Jim says it's very much a right-brain testing, like it tests and stresses your right brain and kind of shows you what relational emotional skills you need to work on. Mm. And in that training, you know, he talked like talked about joy a lot, which you've you've talked about in some of your other podcasts. He talked about the importance of our our, our attachments to each other being like a, a family level of attachment of permanence, mm-hmm. not just kind of collegial relationships or someone you see one day a week at church or whatever, but these just kind of long-term, eternally bonded, deep, deep relationships. And when you have those joyful, deep relationships, then your brain actually has this access to the area that starts saying, okay, what do my people do here? That's group identity. Mm -hmm. And he says, we need to actually be intentionally developing our group identity. And we did every every week, we would pick an aspect of of, uh, Christian group identity, and then we'd speak it to each other and then do some study on it and then remind each other about it. Mm. Um, But it's not so much like our values or, or our strategies. It's more what kind of people are we? I've already mentioned something earlier where I said we're slow to speak and quick to listen. Sure. That's a good example of, of group identity. Like in this situation, I want to blurt out my answer. If I've been building group identity, my brain is going to say, what would my people do? Well, right here, my people would be very calm and let the other person speak and show great respect and don't blurt your answer out. But but it does this faster than conscious thought. Mm-hmm. So away from the problem in, in my community, in my study, in my group, if we're building group identity and we're practicing and thinking about it and, and making it a part of who we are, then in the pressure moment, instantaneously, almost, you know, almost like it comes out my pores, I will start to be in spontaneously slow to speak, mm-hmm. which keeps me relational. And realizing I don't need to win the argument, it's much more important for me to love the person, to hear their story, show them tenderness, and be very slow to respond with my answer, but very, very quick to listen and to love and to show the person, you know, compassion. But we need to do the work away from the stressful situations in building our group identity. Around all of life, all of the tricky areas of life, it's really what Jesus did in his Sermon on the Mount. He, you know, it, it, he went in and got pretty sticky and specific around things. You know, like you know what happens when you know you, you see a pretty woman and your ma- mind wants to start thinking things. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, it's you don't commit adultery when you just cheat on your wife. It's when your mind goes off too. You're doing it. Well, that's pretty specific. You know, it's yeah. not, you know, he's talking about, he's taking it down into a finer grain stuff and saying, this is the kind of people we are. Yeah, that's great.
0: I remember, you know, growing up and I still think they float around and this goes all the way back to a, a book whose title, I forget, but the whole, like, what would Jesus do kind of movement, Yep. Uh, you know, wearing the bracelets and, and that's a good sentiment, but what the brain is actually telling us is it's really hard to answer in the moment. What would Jesus do? without a lot of training. But uh it's actually we don't answer what would Jesus do? We answer what would the Jesus people do or what would my Jesus people do in this moment. That's actually what we end up doing. Yep. Um and and we need the models and the templates, the the mental models, the templates, uh past experiences to fill out and be very robust in our right minds so that then those things can just come out of us at the speed of life rather than we're driving home and we're like, Oh, I don't know why I got into that thing again with so-and-so I told myself I wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, that's because your right. Your left brain now is after the fact is processing all these things. It's like, how come you didn't do the things you're committed to? It's because your right brain hadn't been trained up enough, didn't have enough templates or patterns, um, to, to respond properly.
1: Exactly. What happens is, you know, the the what would Jesus do, people would put bracelets on to try to remind him. So when you're about to do something you shouldn't do, you'd say, What would Jesus do? Which the is problem bad, with that is so it's, so it's No, better it's not than bad. <laughs> but the but our our conscious ability to <laughs> do like this and look at our wrist brand and, and the problem is our character has already come out. Our character is almost instantaneous. Mm-hmm. We right. actually don't have direct willpower over our character. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that blew When Jim said that, it was like, my brain's blowing up. And I'm like, "What? we don't? Because it's all been will based, willpower-based. And so it's not bad to say what would Jesus do, but usually those kinds of things with our willpower, left brain things, they're better at cleaning up the messes we've already made. Like you and I are talking about, maybe we work together and we're talking about some stressful thing and I kind of blow up at you. My left brain can can say, you know, you should go talk to Jeff and and just let him know you were out of place. And I come. I'm sorry about that. I don't know why I did that, and uh, I just wanted you to know that was that was not good. That was I, I own that. Those are all really good. Um, those are cleaning up the mess. Mm-hmm. But the thing we do we sometimes miss then is how do you actually change your instantaneous with characters characters really are instantaneous, almost spontaneous behavior that comes out like just through our pores. It's our gut behavior. How do we change that? Right?
0: So that's the question. How do we change that? If we don't have direct power over our wills, or we don't have direct willpower over our character, but we do kind of have an, an indirect power, we can kind of lay the groundwork for these things. So how do we start? slowly changing some of these. And I know you go over it and you talk about the group identity. So how do we solidify group identity? You also talk about healthy correction. And this yeah. is maybe something that a lot of people, you know, aren't we supposed to just go to church and kind of be nice and love one another? And yeah, sometimes you have a challenge in a motivational sermon, but you shouldn't get in people's faces about stuff, right? right? What is this idea of healthy correction? And why is it so essential to training our right brains?
1: Well, healthy correction, you know, most of us, when we think of correction, the only thing we've ever seen or experienced is is toxic correction, mm-hmm. which is really some form of me telling you that you're bad. Like you screwed up in that meeting, so don't ever do that again. The reason that's toxic is I'm telling you what you did wrong, but I'm not giving you any way out or any hope or any relational connection in it. So, healthy correction is very relational. We see Jesus doing this over and over, and it's very much a reminder. And we also use the word we much more than we use the word you. Mm -hmm. Like, if you did something in a meeting that I didn't think, you know, looks like the character of Jesus, a healthy correction, instead of saying, you screwed up there, don't do it again, a healthy correction is more like... You know, it looks like you like you weren't acting like yourself back then and and that's not the way that's not the way we act. We usually what we do in those situations is where people it's very, very slow to speak and quick to listen. And it seemed like you were pretty quick Mm -hmm. to listen. And so I just wanted to, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I just wanted to offer that to you. And I do that to myself. And but it's so it's very relational. It's more, much, much more of a reminder. And it has just a very little teeny prick of what me telling you what you did wrong, hmm. but a lot of it is this is who we are as a people. Let me remind you because I think you might have forgotten.
0: Yeah, so it's less um, that you're a bad person and more of a this is the people we aspire
1: to be. You've forgotten who you are. Yeah, this is who you. Re- this is who we. Re- we really, really are. And I'm inviting you back. Come back into us and act like the who we are. Mm -hmm. And I invite you to do the same to me because we'll both, you know, if we're spending time together, if we're working together, if we're living together close or whatever, we're going to see these things in each other's lives where we stop acting like ourselves.
0: Yes. So there is a major infection or, um, or something that grows in the soil of unhealthy relational skills when we don't nurture kind of the full brand Christianity that you're talking about. And you kind of end the book talking about, um how, when we have more fear in our communities and the soil of our communities rather than love, that something springs up, and it's called narcissism. Yeah, can you kind of just cover a little bit uh, when we don't have good group identity and healthy correction, uh, and we're not developing a sense of being able to love our enemies, that's fertile ground for narcissism to grow. Could you explain a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. When we, you know, when we have kind of this left brain Christianity and we're not, we're not uh, developing the emotional and relational skills alongside with the other traditional discipleship skills, um, you know, the, the, the least worst thing that can happen is that we just don't see a lot of transformation in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, we seem, we see some minor improvements in character maybe, but it's not very radical transformation. That's the least worst thing that happens. but, but also, what we often see happening is when you have that kind of relational soil, where there's there's not much joy, our attachments to each other are not very strong, and or they're fear based. Mm. We we have a very undeveloped group identity, and, and we we either never correct each other because we're kind of walk on eggshells around each other, or maybe we only toxically correct each other. That is an environment for narcissism just to flourish and to grow, and and. You know, it's kind of like mold spores. If they can sit in the sto- soil for for a long, long time and never come up, and they get the right soil conditions, and boom, you have mushrooms growing all over the place. Mm-hmm. And that tends to what see what's happening in 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 this in this in environments where we haven't learned to form our great gr- our group identity and, and and to hone each other's character using healthy correction. Uh, You're just kind of opening up for this fungus, this this disease to grow, which is narcissism. Narcissism is really, you know, kind of a self-justified character where you can't you cannot correct me, and I'll always win the argument. And it's really a focus that I'm special. We see this a lot in leaders, but it's not just in leaders, you know. Mm -hmm. There can be kind of behind-the-scenes influencers, or there's some churches have really influential families that are kind of manipulating things. And those can have high levels of narcissism as well. But really, you have to go back to the soil. Mm -hmm. And the soil that's really resistant to narcissism has high joy. It has... Very deep, deep bonds. We call hesed is the Greek, is mm-hmm. the uh, Hebrew word for this deep kind of bonded love. It has a very well developed group identity, and then we hone each other's character using healthy correction. Without those, like those are like nutrients into soil, and when when mm-hmm. you start to get missing those one or more of those, then you're going to see these mushrooms spring up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. And a lot of times we you know look at someone and we're like they're ruining the community and. But sometimes we should say, "Well, they're kind of a product of the community. Yep, like, yeah, that they, they are detrimental to the community. But there's things that are happening because the soil is not healthy. Well, good. Well, what are the, some of the other things that um, just have been standing out to you as far as this whole-brained Christianity that you would, you know, just love to see spread kind of among the churches? <laughs>
1: Well, another thing we've been talking about a lot, you know, um, is the importance of eliminating fear, all forms of fear, as a motivation. Mm-hmm. And that's actually one of the kind of metrics we can measure about whether our, our discipleship is actually working, or is it just a bunch of words, you know, a bunch of fluff that doesn't really do much. Is is are our, our our most of us are more much more motivated by fear than we realize. Sure. And so part of a a healthy, full-brain discipleship is where we actually delve into our fears together. Yeah. Now, that really requires that we have a really safe environment, and we have healthy and strong bonds to the point where we can start sharing our weakness. Mm -hmm. You know, areas of our life that are failures or weaknesses, that we can openly share those, knowing that they will be treated with kindness and tenderness. Um. And one of those big areas we, we need to start sharing and actually doing work, intentional uh, focused work is on my fears. What, what are the things that I, where does fear drive me? Where, where am I motivated by fear rather than by love? Our brain was, has really two motivation systems. One is fear and one is really kind of a, a joyful, loving, identity based motivation. Right. Like I'm identity meaning I am actually acting like the, this is who Jesus created me to be. Yeah. I'm doing what Jesus has created me to do. That's a very, very highly motivated system. A lot of times that system gets overwhelmed with the fear motivation, which is, it's more short-term kind of flash in the pan motivating, but it never lasts. And it also long-term kind of tends to blow up communities over time. So it's, it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't give you the long-term fuel like, like the loving identity-based um, motivation does.
0: Well, and I like that you said fear as a motivation. And you're not saying don't ever feel fear. Don't ever be honest about your fears. But you're saying don't, don't be motivated by your fears. And uh, that does seem to be, you know, a pretty consistent theme in Scripture. You know, when God shows up, people are afraid. And God says, don't be afraid, you know. Yep. And, and then what does he say? More often than not, and you can't not see it once you start looking for it, is God will say, I am with you. I will or I will be with you in the midst of all these things. You know, the people going into the land, the people going into the exile and Jesus and the Holy <laughs> Spirit being promised. I I'll be with you. And when God is when we really believe in our full brain that God is with us, then we don't need to be motivated out of fear because we have, you know, that attachment, we have that secure kind of space to live out of um you know we believe that god is good or faithful or hesed as you know as you were saying for the hebrew word there uh so all those things really start fitting together but we don't usually get there if we're just focused on good doctrine and stop doing bad things uh which has kind of been the discipleship model for much of the church
1: yeah you know the uh it's interesting that God's, you know, very quickly when he, when he says, do not fear, and then he says, I'm with you. There's a lot of verses that say that over and over again, especially through the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament. Um, mm-hmm. Really, one of the first steps to eliminating fear as a motivating factor is to talk to God about every little fear, big and small, that we have. As a matter of fact, we don't want to hide our fears. We don't want to pretend we don't have them, which is, that's what some people do. is They think, okay, fear's bad, so I'm not going to fear. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, fear is not bad. Fear actually quite. It was, fear will save your life. Right. Um, my wife and I were hiking up here above. We live in Boulder, up above in the mountains, and we came around a turn I, in this trail that we're hiking, and I heard this, brrrr, and and I, I thought it was like bees buzzing at first. I couldn't tell, and all of a sudden something clicked in my mind. That's a rattlesnake and i and my my <laughs> wife was on the side of the rattlesnake so i grabbed her and pulled her over to the other side and jumped to the other side just as we saw this rattlesnake curled up on the side oh, wow. getting some sun and that was a fear motivation it pumped adrenaline into my system it you know might have saved us from one of us from getting bitten right 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 so i'm not talking about that that's the way god designed it it's meant to save us in kind of the instantaneous startle fear to give us energy to escape danger What fear was not designed to do is for us to live in this constant bath of the fear emotions, you know, the cortisol, just having this spiking all the time. Oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose my job. Oh no, this is going to, that is actually toxic to us. It's almost like poison going through our system. The long-term motivation of fear. um, Yeah, it just doesn't work. But there's a lot of churches, honestly, that have very deeply intertwined, connected, deeply rooted fear bonding motivation systems, and they're very difficult to undo Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things we're talking about, Jim and I, is how do we help a church that wants to change that, mm-hmm. that has a lot of fear bonding? How do we change fear bonds to love bonds in a community? Not just a, not just in my own self. We start with ourselves, you know, just becoming first aware of our fears, talking to God and to other people about our fears. That's very helpful. But it doesn't start there. Usually behind a fear, there's always a relationship. So you have a, some sort of fear-bonded relationship with someone. Right. And, and then how do you convert that into a love bond that now that is some advanced discipleship, but that's really where our discipleship will need to go eventually, you know?
0: Well, that sounds like a topic for another conversation. So maybe I should have you on. I think, yes, the, the transition from fear bonds to love bonds, you know, it just seems that there is a lot of fear, um, in churches in America, uh, these days. And so how do we transform that, um, but thank you so much for being on. Michael, he, along with Jim Wilder, has written the other half of the church. Here, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the cover, the other half of the church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. <laughs> thank you so much for being on. And uh yeah, let's let's do this again sometime.
1: I'd love to do that, Jeff. Let's do
0: it. Great. <laughs>